Don't you dare cheat me again. They'll be at the port in an hour. Live or die, I'll be with you. I'll let you live for another hour. I'm telling the truth. You'll find out at dawn. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rollet. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title like this one, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 109, back to Cole's choice. What's the contemporary choice you got for us? We are talking about Drug War from 2012, and that's directed by Johnny Toe and starring Sun Hong Lei, Louis Ku, Huang Yi, Wallace Chung, and one of Toe's mainstays, Lam Sweat. It's about a drug lord who's arrested and then coerced into betraying his partners as part of an undercover operation. In this film, it starts at a dead run with this sickly green smoke from an explosion in the background. The first thing we see is a car careening out of control all over the highway. The driver is disfigured and burned and vomiting, and we follow that car's progress until it smashes through a restaurant window. Suffice it to say, it really gets your attention. This time around, I really noticed the music more than I had before. I like the sense of urgency in it. There's some good drums, some sort of chirps. Maybe it's also because I watched a John Carpenter film right before. It has that same driving beat. That's funny. Music is usually one of the first things I noticed, but it didn't stick with me that way this time like it did for you, it seems like. The music here is by one of Johnny Toe's frequent collaborators, actually. That's Xavier Jameau. He also wrote his own IMDb profile, the last line of which is, flavor is the aim. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do like the music in this quite a lot. Well, I'm fond of a lot of Johnny Toe films, but part of the reason I chose this for the show is because I know this one made such a big impression on you. And can you put your finger on why that was? Was this your first film of his? I think that it was. I think that you nailed it. That starting off with a dead run, and it never lets up. It's quite ingenious. So many twists and turns. So many great characterizations as well. I just hadn't really seen anything like this before. I envy you a little bit in that regard. I know that some of his longtime fans may not consider this the definitive Johnny Toe, but as an entry point, I think it's great in a lot of ways and it gives us a lot of fun things to talk about. Now, I came to him a little earlier than you, and I think that my connection to Hong Kong cinema may go back further in our lives, but I didn't even discover his films until he was well into his career either. He'd been making films for about 20 years before I became aware of him. And like we said, I still haven't gotten to a huge number of Toe films. I think I'm up to about three or four. But it does seem like, including your introduction, that he's using what feels like almost a rep company here. Producer, screenwriter, music that I mentioned, actors, editing, design, cinematography, on and on. Now, having seen so many of his films, do you feel like, especially in this instance of Drug War, is that a good or a bad thing? 
It's a great observation because he started that production company of his, Milky Way Image Limited, 23 years ago now. And so he's developed this bond with all of these collaborators and creators that he can completely implicitly trust. And so I think it's a great thing. And he doesn't lean too heavily on it all the time. You'll see within his career, many bursts and little phases where he'll use the same actors, for instance, over and over again in these little small arcs where he's developing a specific set of themes or wants to generate a specific feeling by having them come back again and again. But I also think, obviously, he displays enough variety throughout his filmography that it doesn't feel like the same tired event repeated. Because his filmography is huge. I really do think there's something to be said for being part of a scene while it's happening. And so you can experience that use of the same actors over and over again. And you can ride that wave a little bit with him. You get to experience releases in real time. You get to have that anticipation of waiting for them to hit your theater. You get a true feeling of the zeitgeist around them. But then there's also something really great about discovering it after the fact. And one of my favorite things is to discover a filmmaker that I was previously completely ignorant of that has a large and important body of work. It's like getting a huge gift. Older movements are one thing. We came to noir and the French New Wave, for example, after the fact, obviously, just based on when we were born. Do you have a preference in terms of your method or discovery? Do you like to be during or do you like to be post? Gosh, you know, I feel kind of on the fence, which is not going to be a big surprise. I think on the one hand, in general, I hate suspense. I want it right now. I don't want to wait years for the next release. Let's talk about Terrence Malick, for example. So it's pretty awesome to then discover Johnny Toe and realize, oh, there are all these films I can sink my teeth into. Do you have a filmmaker that you feel like you were in on the ground floor with, or at least early on that you kind of grew up with? The first person that comes to mind is Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs. I remember my cousin talking about it being so excited, and then I wasn't quite ready to watch it. And when I finally came to it, which was pretty soon after its release, I thought, whoa, I'm seeing something really cool and interesting here. I can't wait to see what comes next. In terms of when I like to make a discovery, I think I'm the same as you. Obviously, research appeals to us a lot. So I like discovering things later. You get an entire filmography to explore, and you get all the scholarship that's been done to help you understand and contextualize everything. What's fun about Johnny Toe, though, is you get to have your cake and eat it, too. Drug War is just scratching the surface. A short list of the types of films he's made, much less the titles themselves, it really shows just how much he defies categorization. And if you knew Johnny Toe in the late 80s, for instance, you might not have been able to predict the Johnny Toe of the last 10 years. He just has such a large body of work that is significant to the history of cinema in Hong Kong, so you have the benefit of all that to draw on and be able to see his evolution and his effect on genre filmmaking in that part of the world and beyond. And then... He's still a viable filmmaker now, in full command of his abilities, and so you can experience his releases contemporaneously, too, giving you a true understanding of how they work in the times and conditions in which they were created, which I think is very important to Drug War. It's the best of both worlds. Our first set piece after this crash is what turns out to be a big police undercover operation and drug bust through a toll station. It's a lengthy, tense piece with 
tons of moving parts and all kinds of people on both sides of the law. Yes, as everything converges on this toll booth, everyone passing through it is on edge. We have these two whacked out guys driving around in this huge green truck. We've got pairs of scruffy looking types in sedans with bottles full of urine in the car, a busload of travelers, and all of it is delivered in that Johnny Toe style with these little tip-offs that he expects you to catch that communicate a lot. For example, what Whatever everyone has been doing to get here has been too important to stop driving, obviously. And he delivers all of this without being too antsy or relying on gimmicks like shaky cam. It's small details, not tricks, with which he conveys this tension and paranoia. And they're right to be paranoid. It's a bust. The people on the bus are drug mules. In the same way that he puts you in the world of all these travelers on the road, that is to say quickly, everything happens quickly in this movie. Side note, if you are one of those people when watching a movie that moves at a normal pace and find yourself asking your friends, who's that guy? What's he doing? Johnny Toe is not a filmmaker for you. Just go sit in the other room and wait for (laughs) this one to be over. He will leave you in the dust and not think twice about it. Anyway, he establishes quickly that the people on this bus, understandably for drug mules, are afraid and desperate. I think it's really interesting that our landscape is different here. We're in mainland China. And so it's very straightforward from the cops what their motivation here is. It's in the title after all. But also, what's at stake for these drug traffickers beyond the compromise to their physical health is the ultimate penalty, and that's execution for the drug makers. It's a precarious position to be in long-term or short-term, as we soon learn the lesson that handcuffed with your pants around your ankles is no state in which to be talking trash to the police. (laughs) That's true. Now, if you're just coming to Johnny Toe, you might not know it, but this backdrop and tone of the opening is kind of new territory for him. How so, since I'm one of those new folks? This antiseptic blankness of the hospital and the abject state of these drug couriers It's one of the first indications, I think, that we're seeing a little different Johnny Toe than we may be used to. And that's because it's all decidedly less than glamorous, which is a little odd for Toe. Because even when he's trying to take the romantic appeal out of something like operatic gangster films, he's so skilled at what he does that he can't help but make it look good. This isn't Hong Kong slick, by the way. This is industrial nowhere hinterlands. It's also uncharacteristically blunt in laying out the rules of engagement. In previous films, he would often go to greater lengths to cultivate an air of mystery or ambiguity. If you're paying attention, he's giving everything to you. I love, for instance, the touch of Captain Zhang first appearing as sort of a literal white hat western sheriff. Complete with boots. If that's too subtle for you, though, Zhang soon makes it clear that this undercover sting is no betrayal. He is here to do a job. Now, our messed up driver from the prologue, whom we soon learn is Timmy Joy, is brought into the ER simultaneously with the bus passengers. Zhang immediately recognizes that his injuries are in keeping with drug production, and he retrieves Choi's phone. And meanwhile, those guys in the truck, they're circling around like drug-addled vultures, calling him repeatedly, awaiting instruction. Now, one of the things that I love the most about drug war, and all Johnny Toe films in general for that matter, is that the delivery of information is so clean and precise. Exposition is a real strong suit here, especially with a film like this that could potentially be so confusing. And when I say exposition, 
I don't mean that in the way that people often use it. There's no clumsy voiceover. There's no forced insertion of scenes that make subtext into text. There isn't much here that's directly spelled out for the audience, and yet the threads are kept tight and it moves so quickly. So when we learn that Timmy Choi's wife, who was a fatality in the explosion indicated by the smoke in the prologue, it makes sense that he's taking no time to recover from that or even from these chemical burns. He's just looking for an escape at this point. I think that's a great detail that actually demonstrates that. I love that it trusts the audience to the degree that it does. Now, how is it for you to follow the first time? I'm pretty sure I was just on the edge of my seat trying to figure out who was working with whom. Is Timmy Choi going to double-cross everybody himself? What are his motivations here? But hopefully I refrain from saying, who's that guy? What is he doing? Where do I know him from? Well, I've heard it described as he gives you B and then he expects you to extrapolate A from that. Your detail is a great example of that, I think. And on a larger scale, I feel like that's a really great description of the way that storytelling is handled in this, and I really appreciate that about it. There's another detail I love that puts us in this place. It's a shot coming up that I think is among my favorites, if not my most favorite, and it's really subtle. It's the iced over river, and people have cut holes in it to fish. We know exactly where we are when we see this. Minnesota? <laughs> kind of close. I know what you mean here. And what it comes down to for me with this is that he's just so smart with genre film, which we love. He's a specialist in it. Mainly, more specifically, in refining genres to the point of practically dismantling them. He knows these conventions inside and out so he can play it straight or deconstruct them depending on what's needed. And a lot of film fans that eventually come to his work, like us, we've been around that genre block a bit, and he lets us bring our experience as an audience to it. So it's a similar dual track for both audience and filmmaker. We understand some of the shorthand, so we can do that work of quickly extrapolating A from B, but it's also fun when he uses that against us and we think we know what we're going to get because we feel like we've seen it all before. Then he doubles down in some audacious way like this back-to-back -back meeting sequence that we have in the middle of the film and totally upends our expectations. Have I mentioned also how much I love Sun Hong Lee as Captain Zhang? He has such a great stoic presence. I never doubt that he will persevere. And I think it's a really fitting choice for this character that he's almost always unarmed as well. I feel like he doesn't need it. I get the feeling that if I looked in his eyes, it would just be dead blackness mirroring me, and I would not want to see that. I feel like he and Louis Koo are actually great counterparts from one another, too. What did you think of their chemistry? So great, and they're playing so many angles that are just starting to unfold. I'm watching Louis Koo all the time, and I'm trying to figure out where he's coming from. He seems genuine and scared, but not quite terrified. So more than anything, I'm seeing cunning here. And then it makes perfect sense to me that Johnny Toe's favorite actor is Alain Delon. Yeah, I get a little bit of that Melville touch here, too. I think that's something that a lot of Western audiences may not realize is just how varied a background a lot of these actors from Hong Kong and China actually have. We're used to seeing a lot of American celebrities stay in a fairly narrow lane sometimes, but Sun Hong Lee and Louis Ku are both pretty emblematic of the tradition that I'm talking about. They do it all. Action, romance, 
period pieces, martial arts films, comedies, tons of television. These are multifaceted performers with a large variety of skills. And while we're on that subject, let's talk about Huang Yi and what an important part she plays here. She's Captain Zhang's right hand, and she's just as adept at investigation, interrogation, and most importantly, that thing that you referred to a little bit, this slipping between the role of cop and criminal. From the first moment that we see her in that toll booth, she comes across as so incredibly capable. And she's got to play multiple roles here, too. She's practically a one-woman Mission Impossible. Speaking of the toll booth and the resources at the state's disposal, we were talking during our most recent viewing about using CCTV as a policing device to track this truck. Now, it turns out that this is something that you're much more used to seeing than I am because of your viewing habits. I guess because I'm a bit more of an Anglophile, I'm watching a lot more British cop shows, and you see it all the time. It's constantly in use. Well, it's interesting to me for two reasons. First, the way Americans view that versus the rest of the world, where it's much more common. It's still jarring for me to encounter, for instance. Do you mean in terms of us being more concerned about privacy? Definitely. And then how it plays into the politics of this being Toe's first action film in collaboration with mainland China. He has the tools of the state at his disposal now and is deploying them in this, on the surface anyway, very pro-police, anti-drug procedural. The Hong Kong of his previous films definitely feels different than mainland China on screen. There's so much open space in Jinhai relative to Hong Kong, it looks more like the frontier. But is that truly the case with all this surveillance and zero-tolerance drug policy? I mentioned that it looked like we're in the industrial hinterlands nowheresville. It might look like the frontier, but let's be reminded again, the death penalty is an inevitability here if you're caught as a drug maker. And during this initial interrogation of Timmy Choi, they are laying out exactly those details. A death penalty case for manufacturing and distributing these drugs. The same way that Captain Zhang's cowboy hat was a tip-off, should we read much into the fact that when they captured him, Choi was not just hiding in the morgue, but in a drawer on a slab? I missed that the first time. To possibly avoid this date with the executioner, he is spilling his guts. There is no honor among meth dealers, I suppose, and Choi says he wants redemption. But that's a sucker play, obviously. This is straight self-preservation. And that's not a surprise with a weasel drug dealer, right? He's an intriguing villain. I still was not clear at that point how much he could be trusted. I think that what is most interesting to me here is that there's not much of a sense of a moral imperative on either side. So acknowledging that, what do you think is the engine that drives them? They both seem to be basically pawns or cogs in this wheel. The police are there to catch the drug dealers. The drug dealers are trying to make money and then escape the law. This meeting set piece that I alluded to earlier, it's in preparation for Zhang to play the role of Ha-Ha, one of Choi's associates. And to make this work, they have to go meet the real Ha-Ha first. And Ha-Ha is a braggart. He's fidgety. He grabs the surveillance device at one point. It's a tense, well-crafted scene, and it feels very touch-and-go in a couple of places. And Zhang is utterly deadpan throughout, and then Choi plays along perfectly with this. Then, the action moves virtually just down the hall for Zhang to become Ha-Ha when he meets with Li Su Chang, or Chang, as he's called in the English subtitles. It's night and day, his transformation into Ha-Ha, and the timing of this has to be split-second. 
I love that Zhang finds all of these details to add, like sniffing from his hand as they exit the car. It turns out that Zhang's criminal instincts in these meetings are better than either Ha Ha's or Chang's, I feel like. He clearly intimidates Ha Ha, and he's obviously smarter than the reckless and sort of dumb Chang. But Chang has the advantage that all criminals have over honest cops. He's willing to commit criminal acts, and Chang puts Zhang on the spot, insisting that he share his drugs or there is no deal. Now this showdown is tense, but the resulting OD that comes from this, the way they play this reaction to the drugs, is it a little too hysterical after-school special for you? It definitely plays like that one episode where the person jumped out of the window on PCP. Helen Hunt, as a matter of fact. So there's not much nuance here, it seems to me, in this complete drug freakout, and it kind of seems like a false note. Do you think it's part of this larger censorship question? Because there's clearly no censorship around the amount of violence that they're allowed to show. Right. Have all of that that you want, but just as long as you don't contradict our stance on drugs. It's a false note for me, too. But that notwithstanding, I really do love how these scenes unfold. That thing I was saying earlier about Toe trusting the audience to get it, that's especially the case here. I disagree with you slightly. I think there's another false note, again, with the drug taking and how those two characters are portrayed, the ones driving the transport van. Are they a little too buffoonish for you? No, I don't think so. The way that I look at those two characters, for me, they fit into this long tradition in Asian films, particularly Kung Fu films, you'll see it a lot, of characters like that that are included for comic relief that might just not hit the mark with Western audiences. I think that's the tradition that they belong to. Okay, I'll give Johnny Toe the benefit of the doubt here. Well, you should, because he's a master. Because when you look at this, most movies would be satisfied to give us just one scene where this impersonation takes place and the tension is ratcheted up by Zhang just being so implacable. But this film gives us that great scene as a jumping off point. It's such a fun and bold move to give us that as a baseline. It's a close call, but they pulled it off. And then to immediately turn around the very next second and have Zhang playing a character 180 degrees opposite and have everything implode. One of Toe's regular motifs is doubling, and you'll see it a ton in this film, in various pairs of cops and criminals, in raids, in shootouts. But this sequence takes that tendency and just shoots it into the stratosphere. In the aftermath of these meetings, this big green truck finally crashes. And obviously these are not the employees of the month. These guys are freaking out. And all through this section, I was especially aware of Toe's color coding. In rapid succession through this part, you'll notice the interplay of the vehicles that are involved in this surveillance convoy. The red, the white, the blue of the cars. And then that's echoed in the tents alongside the road in the background. And then also, most importantly, in the train car interior, where Zhang is transporting Choi. Frequently, those colors will be pointing us to who has the upper hand, who has the lead at the moment. But for me, the most important use of color is this pervasive green that I see everywhere. The green and the red may have registered more for you, but I do feel like the film is just a wash in blue at so many points. Interiors of cars are a great opportunity for blue light. Even going all the way back to the hospital and their clothing and the blankets. You're right, it's still green for me. When Zhang visits the smoking wreckage of the drug lab, green. This mobile meth supply truck, green. 
and I think it's for a very important reason. You're absolutely right. Toe uses blue a ton, and a little less often gold, to indicate these two separate worlds. But just as often for me, he uses the green. And I think the fusion of those two colors is a visual indicator that the boundary between these two men isn't as defined as everyone would like to think. This subtle use of color in the background, that's where Toe cultivates his ambiguity this time. Speaking of gold, the hotel is a great opportunity for that. And the clothing that everyone wears there. Choi finally meets his hapless delivery boys here, and then it's on to meet the rest of his crew. Much like I assume police work is in real life, these procedurals, they're often a game of flipping the little fish to get to the big fish. It's risky, though, because this is the first moment that Choi has to be trusted to stick to the plan without direct supervision. The police can only watch via camera, and he's crying and drinking and making these ritual gestures. He's delivering the bad news about the lab explosion. I love this detail here of the workers insisting that he burn money as the sacrificial offering. It's a chance for him to actually grieve for his wife, and it's another interesting detail where it didn't have to be. We also encounter a pair of mute brothers who seem to be in charge of this arm of the operation, and I think they also fit into this long tradition of having questionable elements of comic relief in Asian films, but I think it's a clever Johnny Toe type of inversion to make them seem almost buffoonish at first and manage to keep them superficially in the realm of comic relief, but then to make them so formidable. It's a lesson that everyone learns. They are not to be trifled with. What did you make of those characters? I'm with you. At first, they seem almost lovable. They're very engaging. And then, of course, they're about to be dropping bombs here in short order. Well, Uncle Bill, as he's known, he's the big fish that has been the ultimate goal here. And he is unpredictable. After this raid goes awry, out on the road, he brings out the whole clan here for a drop and has Zhang playing musical minivans at a stoplight to see if this is a setup. It's a lot of moving pieces to keep juggling, but again, Toe expects you to keep up, and I hope you are because, conveyed in one quick glance, one little move, you see Timmy Choi do something that sets up every decision that he makes in the finale. Okay, I was totally concentrating on the 34 seconds that they have to do this drop. I missed, what is this move? You'll notice when Captain Zhang and Yang Xiaobei are both out of the car participating in this money drop, when he's left completely alone, this look of resignation and disdain comes over his face, and he just momentarily moves directly into the middle of the back seat. Ah, okay. He is on neither one side nor the other, when left to his own devices. Now, I have to ask you, these types of criminal meetings, do you think they actually take place in real life, or does this only happen in screenwriters' imaginations? I'm really glad that they happen in screenwriters' imaginations, but I think in general, nobody is this smart on either side. That's what I'm really afraid of. Well, I hope it's true. I hope that they go through these clever machinations to get all this done, because otherwise, you know, we touched on it briefly earlier, in this particular case, there seems to be no room in this story for anything other than the grind. There's no indication that the cops do anything except pursue criminals and that drug dealers do anything but expand their empire. These are people that are defined by their work. 
because we don't see Timmy Choi living it up at any point. I guess Haha is the one having fun, but everyone else is pretty straightforward. And really, pretty grim, if nothing else. Yeah, as far as motivating factors, greed doesn't seem like it. I think you're right. Nothing we see of Timmy Choi's life seems like he can take a moment to enjoy these ill-gotten gains. And cleaning up the streets doesn't seem like anything that motivates Zhang on any sort of deeper level. Ha-ha's having a blast, clearly. Overall, though, I do think the criminals, who are at least a loose-knit family, they seem to have more well-rounded lives than the police, for whom it is just this relentless cycle with little satisfaction or payoff. Because we certainly don't see any backstory for the police, there are no romantic entanglements or other side characters. I think here we get into the politics of censorship again. Is this some subtle subversion on Toe's part to almost evaporate that line between cop and criminal this way? All the blue and gold becoming sickly green all over everyone, all the way down to the green fog of Chinese pollution in the background. This has to be commentary, right? Is this Toe's equivalent of slipping things past the Hayes office here in the 30s and 40s? He's definitely said that he doesn't seek to tell a straightforward story, that using these conventions is a way to tell another kind of a story. So it seems like setting in a mainland China is on purpose, and really telling us that this drug war is never-ending. It's just this constant slog where there are no winners. One of my favorite bits of characterization as they're going through all this, I really like how physically close Zhang frequently gets to Choi. I think it's a great choice that's 50% intimacy and then 50% intimidation tactic. When he tells him, live or die, I'll always be with you, it's no joke. And I use intimacy, by the way, only in the sense of literal attachment, which will come into play later. There's none of this gradually warming to one another that you sometimes see in this type of film. They don't become buddies. I'll have to watch it again to see if this sense that I have is true, but I really felt like there's no key light used on Zhang at any point. I spoke of those dead black eyes. That's all that I'm thinking about. So you'd hate to have him turn his chair around and pull it up to you for a rap session? No, thank you. You're absolutely right. Regarding Timmy Choi, Zhang is cold-blooded from beginning to the bitter end. And it's the right play, because if you know the genre... You know that Timmy is only going to stay in the police's pocket for as long as he is literally in that close proximity to them. The film, it tries to set up this question as to whether or not Choi can be trusted. But did you ever have any doubt that he was going to bolt at the first opportunity? Honestly, I still wasn't completely sure, especially when we're talking about some family members here. I feel like it's telling me from the word go that he is strictly out for only himself. And the fun of that is how it's going to play itself out, even when you know it. In this case, what sets it apart is the fact that Timmy doesn't just betray the police, he betrays everyone. It takes just a little longer for this to unfold, though, and this meeting that they've set up with Uncle Bill at the harbor, it goes well for the most part. As a display of power, when they get all the boats in the harbor to set sail, that's an impressive display. Again, though, when we see that, does it make the criminals at least a little more sympathetic? How can they hope to contend with a state so powerful that all of this is at their disposal? Does it make them feel like a little bit of an underdog? 
I talked about that endless slog a moment ago, and they do mention that there are many countries and other players involved, so it doesn't seem like they're an underdog. It seems like they have so much money, and then the police have so many tools, no one can ever win. It's constant one-upsmanship. You're right, there is some back and forth, and then this follow-up meeting, it doesn't go as smoothly, and the uncles end up getting Choi out of Zhang's hands and back with them. Now, on the first viewing, this was where I was unsure. This was what fooled me. I first suspected that he might not survive that night. Do you recall having a specific instinct when you saw them take him away like that? I think I thought this might be his big chance, but then those expectations are subverted again because we find out that Uncle Bill was essentially a front. Well, for me, it works perfectly because it's that slight hesitation, that moment of drawing in a breath before everything takes off in this finale. And with as relentless and swift as the movie seems, once we get to this finale, we realize that it's been holding back, holding back, just waiting to explode in this final 20 minutes. If the first two acts were a mission impossible, the last act is basically the wild bunch times a thousand. Timmy breaks, and he has this chance to warn the family that this is all a setup, and a shootout ensues next to the primary school. This gives the filmmakers the opportunity for a brilliant and chilling piece of sound design. You don't see children much once the action begins, but the sound of bullets thunking solidly into cars and ricocheting off concrete is equally mixed with the sound of kids' voices in the air, and it is extremely unnerving. It's unnerving, too, when he does get that chance to warn the family. It still seems like he's planning to use them as human shields. Oh, and things get so bloody so fast. After all this cat and mouse, the actual bloodshed from the gunplay is shocking. And the way that bodies are destroyed by impacts with cars, that is, too. These are our two female cops. We've spent so much time with them, and then we see them get hit and run over. It just feels like there's a fine mist of blood over every flat surface. And now I feel the opposite of what I felt in the beginning. No one is going to survive this carnage. The brothers show up to handle their business, and Choi is now caught between a rock and a mute place, and he understands how dangerous they are. He surrenders to the cops. It's a shrewd, yet cowardly move, I think, and he figures correctly that he has a better chance with the police. Also in this final shootout, Zhang is taking an incredible amount of punishment, a superhuman amount, and Choi shoots everyone to make his escape. He's trying to use the car door to wrench free to get to a car that will work. Zhang gets shot multiple times. We have to assume with everyone, surely he is dead. But we look down and he's managed to handcuff himself as he's dying to Choi's ankle. He gets shot yet again and now Choi has to drag his dead or dying lifeless, near lifeless body to get to this car. If you're going to go out, I guess that's one way, for sure. It's a great detail, and it is one of those moments that immediately felt iconic when I saw it. The feeling in my gut when Timmy looks down and realizes what Zhang's done, I have a physical reaction to it, to how brilliant and final and inescapable and just plain spiteful it is. He can never be rid of him. I think I made a noise somewhere between a laugh and a bark when I saw those handcuffs. Reinforcements arrive, and we know now that Zhang has ensured Choi's death sentence from beyond the grave. 
And that's how it goes down. Choi is spilling his guts right up until they press the plunger on him. It's similar in that way to In Cold Blood. You see this breathing under the hood, the heart eventually coming to a stop. And with this final sequence, I'm reminded, I really love that this film is a taut procedural in the middle, concerned with the police and their process of investigation and pursuit, but it's bookended by these moments of Timmy Choi being completely out of control. Now, we talk a lot about how horror is often a conservative genre at heart. How does this feel to you in terms of how conservative it is? Does it go as far for you as to feel like anti-drug, pro-police propaganda? Does it do enough between the lines to let you know that's not the case? It does seem like there's a message here that no one is ever going to win this drug war. So it doesn't really feel like pro-police propaganda but also I'm questioning some of those moments that feel like they do lack some nuance. So I'm not sure totally where I come down on that question. I think there are just those little things that we have to extrapolate from, like we do for the actual text of the film. For instance, the fact that almost no police survive this final shootout, that is pretty subversive for a mainland Chinese film. Now, the way that you look at this, does any of that come down to your personal views on drug policy? Or is this strictly... A cinematic evaluation. What I mean is, do you have tears for this built in? Are you weighing the impact of these characters' actions on some hypothetical public at large? Do you weigh cocaine as less of an infraction versus meth, and meth less of an infraction than heroin? Or do those even cross your mind in this context? I don't think they do. I think more than anything, that drug policy element of really not being in favor of the death penalty, that that doesn't seem to be a deterrent. I think that's where my personal view comes in, thinking that this is a never-ending, unwinnable war. I see the room for criticism in that context, but yeah, ultimately I come down on, I think Johnny Toe is smarter and more subversive overall than that. What I think that some fans might be reacting negatively to is just a relative lack of warmth in this compared to his other films. His work is extremely varied, and typically it doesn't keep the viewer at a cold distance the way that this does. The mission, for instance, is similarly cool, but even within that, there's sort of a fractured family. This is definitely heavy on style, but that's not the only thing that's going on here. The other thing that some longtime fans might be picking up on is the amount of censorship he had to navigate. That's even something that Toe himself has acknowledged. And two endings were planned for the film. One is the Chinese censored version, where Louis Ku got handcuffed to Zhang at the end, arrested, receives the death penalty that we see. The other ending is with Timmy Choi getting away with it, being seen in Thailand getting away again. Toe said that they ran out of funding before they could shoot that alternate ending, but I'm pretty sure that he knew that that was not going to fly with those Chinese censors. And I think as a result, his authorial voice that people are familiar with may just feel a little diluted. But did any of that interfere with your enjoyment of the film? Not at all. I didn't have the sense of the alternative ending, and it really just seems like a grim, very unnervingly grim tone throughout. Well, how about another one that you enjoyed? Do you have a recommendation for us today? I chose a film you just mentioned a moment ago, The Mission from 1999, also directed by Johnny Toe, with Anthony Wong, Francis Ng, Jackie Louis, Roy Chung, Lam Sweat, and Simon Yam. 
It's about a triad boss who escapes an assassination attempt and hires five killers for his protection. It's slam bang, as usual, great fun, and it has been called, at least at the time, the best action film to come out of Hong Kong in a long time. It's got interesting characters in the way you would expect from a Milky Way production, with incredibly exciting, unstoppable action sequences. How about you? I am going to stick with the master as well, and I'm going to say if you want to see Johnny Toe at the height of his powers in Hong Kong, check out Election from 2005. It stars a huge ensemble cast, but you'll see some familiar faces from this, Louis Ku and Lam Sweat, in addition to the excellent Simon Yam and Tony Leung Kafai, who is in one of your formative films, The Lover. I love Tony. <laughs> It's about two gang leaders who are engaged in a power struggle to become the new chairman of Hong Kong's Triad Society. And it does so many of those things that Toe is so good at. This doubling, following the parallel stories of these two gangsters. Just like drug war, it undermines this idea that there is honor among thieves. And it strips all that away to expose the petty self-preservation and vanity that drives them. It's not full of grandeur like something like The Godfather, but even trying to tear that type of story down, Toe can't help but make something mesmerizing and operatic at a street level. It's one of the true must-sees for anyone who loves Hong Kong gangster films, absolutely essential if you want to understand the genre. So once again, that's two great recommendations, The Mission and Election. And that brings us to the end of episode 109. First and foremost, we want to say a special thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, Richard Sales. Thank you very much, Richard. We appreciate that. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a lot of great shows, so please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out all of our cinema-loving friends and compatriots. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Jordan Courtney, Michael Boyce, Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films podcast, Roger Jackson, Ross McLeod, Marco Waller, Dice K. Beppu, Tim Lego, Aaron West, Spencer Seams, RJ Tugas, David Humble, Julie Grossman, David Harrington, Scott Morris and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Andy Wolverton, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinema Married, Chris Casey, and the folks at Oscilloscope Laboratories. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us there. Thank you very much to the nice anonymous person that recently left us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. 
And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.